Thank you for joining us for Listen NGI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Jonathan Buscalia hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 14,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. It's great to be with you again. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Viscalia, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And today I'm pleased to welcome our guest to the podcast, Dr. Linda Lee, who is the Medical Director of Endoscopy at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And she's Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Today, we're going to be talking about bowel preparations for colonoscopies. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great to be here, and I really appreciate uh, this opportunity. Great. So, I, you know, when you hear about the topic of bowel preparations, I must admit, I think for some listeners or for some gastroenterologists, it may not come leaping off the page in terms of your interest and your enthusiasm and excitement. But I think this is a really important topic, and that's really why I wanted to talk about this today. And so I wanted to see what you think, and why is this important for our patients and our fellow colleagues in the field? Yeah, I completely agree. Obviously, it's not the sexiest of topics, (laughs) um, but I think it's very important, right? Because with colonoscopy, we want to make sure that we're getting the best look possible to ensure that we are not missing lesions, uh, cancer, as well as uh, precancerous polyps in these patients. And that really, uh, you know, a lot of it hinges upon making sure that the patient's have an adequate preparation. I know there's a lot of attention paid on ADR and you know adequate visualization and whatnot, and obviously that's important as well. But if the patient, uh, his or her preparation is just not good enough, it, it doesn't matter how slowly you're withdrawing. You're not going to be able to see uh, the polyps and whatnot that are hidden underneath uh, the stool and whatnot. Yeah. And then I think, you know, we can talk about this, but it affects sort of, you know, when you're asking a patient to come back for a repeat procedure. And I think in, in my experience, you know, over the years, when I talk to patients about their upcoming colonoscopies, whether it's in the office before they actually come or on the day that they land in the procedure unit before the procedure, probably the first thing we talk about is the bowel preparation, right? How did it go? How did you tolerate it? Um, and they usually ask me, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a different way. Have you had that experience? Absolutely. Year after year. And unfortunately, I keep telling them, well, <laughs> there, there, you know, there's no way we can do this without a prep yet. Because um, <laughs> patients are like, do I really have to prep? Uh, so that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there have been some incremental, perhaps, improvements um, with smaller volume preps, pills, you know, instead of the, you know, liquid preps. So, um, you know, we've, we've been able to make some small incremental improvements, but I agree with you. I think um, preparation is a big barrier, honestly, to getting these patients in the door. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of times that's the thing that 
patients are just like, oh my gosh, do I have to go through that? Do I have to do it again? Um, so I, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. So let's oftentimes on the podcast, we start off with a patient scenario because it's, it's a common thing that happens to all of us. So let me just ask you one. Um, this is a very common thing that can happen. Hopefully, hopefully it's not too common, but we've all dealt with this as a patient who's coming to you for a screening or surveillance colonoscopy. And, uh, you know, you see right away that the bowel preparation is suboptimal. And we can talk in a minute about grading bowel, um, uh, bowel uh, preparations in a, in a standardized fashion. But suffice to say that it's, it's a suboptimal bowel preparation, but you decide to press on and advance the scope further because you think that maybe there's a lot of diverticulosis and um, some of that stuff has taken a little bit of uh, time to clear from these pockets and the colon higher up or more proximal may be cleansed better and you have something to work with. But unfortunately, you turn the hepatic flexure or as you approach the hepatic flexure and turn into the right colon further, it's definitely an an inadequate bowel preparation. So what is your approach in this scenario? Um, really, when it comes to talking to the patient, when to bring them back, what should we be doing? I've seen everything all over the map on this. Uh, and so I'd love to get an expert like you to, 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 to learn what you do in this scenario. Yeah, so certainly if it's an inadequate preparation, you know, meaning that you're not confident that you're able to detect polyps that are over five millimeters in size, um, we really need to bring these patients back within a year. That's what ASGE, as well as the U.S. Multi-Force, uh, Multi-Society Task Force uh, suggests. And in reality, what I personally uh, do is I will talk to the patients afterwards and say, hey, you know, unfortunately we couldn't get a good enough look and it's important, you know, to make sure that we bring you back. Um, If they are able to drink more preparation that day and come back the next day so they don't have to start all over again from ground zero, um, I will absolutely offer that. Um, and, and try to keep the patients captive, you know, so I don't lose them to follow right. up either. Um, so that, that's my first go-to. So is, kind of keep them on clear liquids for the, that day and then drink some more prep that, that afternoon. Correct. Again. Correct. So that, that's my preference, but obviously, you know, patients, you know, have to work, you know, they need to get a ride, things like that. So they may not be able to come back the next day. Um, in which case I will then try to make sure that they have an appointment Uh, scheduled before they leave the unit um, for whenever, you know, that they can come back, um, hopefully within the next, you know, months or so, uh, but certainly within a year. And, you know, and then in terms of, you know, the type of preparation I recommend at that point, it really depends on why things went wrong the first time, right? So did the patient not follow the instructions? Um, You know, if they didn't follow the instructions as they were supposed to, then maybe they just need further education uh, to make sure they follow the instructions. But if they did follow it to the T, then to the letter, then I'll, you know, suggest a different preparation. Yeah. I mean, are there any red flags um, when you see a patient before they do their prep? Are there any red flags that tell you you may need to prep these people differently, longer, uh, 48-hour bowel prep, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, if the patients have never had a colonoscopy before, then certain things that may clue you in that the patient's not going to do well with just a standard prep, 
Uh, maybe if they have severe constipation issues, you know, if the patient moves their bowels like once a week or once every other week, um, then, you know, I think it's pretty clear that you'll need to give them a more aggressive bowel preparation. Um, if the patients are on opiates, opiates, you know, that is another problematic thing. If the patients are immobile, you know, mm -hmm. if they're wheelchair bound and whatnot and, and can't get around too well, that's another tip off that the patients are probably not gonna be able to prep uh, adequately with just a standard preparation. So um, in those patients, yes, you know, I will change from the standard preparation and give them a more aggressive preparation up front to try to ensure that mm -hmm. hopefully, we get an adequate prep the first time around. Yeah. Are people doing anything differently uh, in terms of uh, educating patients about the bowel prep these days? You know, um, uh, you know, other than just giving them a set of paper instructions. Um, I'm just curious, you know, you're, I've heard of other practices, uh, both academic and, and non-academic practices doing things like videos and using smartphones and things like that. Are you familiar with any of this stuff? Yeah, so I think education is challenging, right? Because yeah. all of us are kind of pressed for time, you know, during our appointment, we have time to go through the preparation adequately. Um, you know, if I am seeing the patients in clinic, uh, I'll have one of my assistants go over the paper instructions with the patient. Um, and if they have any questions, obviously I'm still there, you know, so they can ask me. So if they're physically there, that's what I do. Um, and then we also, um, in our place, we also send out through our patient portal, uh, the, through our electronic you know, medical record system, we'll send out an electronic version of the preparation as well, because patients may easily lose the paper mm -hmm. version and then leave it somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll do that for all of our patients. Uh, and then um, there, as you mentioned, smartphone app um, is something that it has become you know, much more popular. We use that at our institution as well, where the mm. patients are getting text messages in real time. Hey, you know, go pick up your whatever, you know, prep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, you know, uh, mix up the powder in the water now. Hey, time to drink. You know, so, so we, we use that as well. Oh, and that's studies great. Have, yeah, studies have been done um, that suggest that using the smartphone app seems to improve um, the percent of patients coming in with adequate preps. And, uh, so I think, you know, for patients who have that capability and have smartphones, you know, that's a nice thing uh, to try to leverage. You mentioned videos as well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so yes, certainly, um, I know there've been studies looking at that where there's interactive videos online, kind of trying to educate patients on the bowel prep. Um, I think the studies are a little bit mixed in terms of how efficacious they've been in terms mm -hmm. of uh, leading to improvement in bowel preps. Mm -hmm. Although I think one study suggested that interestingly in subgroup analysis that African-Americans and patients older than the age of 65 um, mm -hmm. had better preps with the use of this interactive video. Mm -hmm. um, so that's certainly something interesting to think about. And the final thing I'll mention is the use of patient navigators. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's 
literature about the use of patient navigators to just try to improve our rate of colon cancer screening with colonoscopy and whatnot, um, not as much, you know, looking at how effective the navigators are at specifically improving prep quality, but I think it makes sense, right? Yeah. That if you can have, if you have a patient navigator uh, in your institution to help them, uh, mm -hmm. with these prep related questions, as well as the entire process, you know, of, of getting mm -hmm. screened for colon cancer. I think that's awesome too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me turn back to the patient that we described before, um, who had an inadequate bowel preparation. I want to sort of stay on the topic just a little bit, like, and ask you sort of what is okay to continue? Um, you know, what do you do in a patient that, um, uh, may not have um, a perfect prep, um, sort of when is it okay to go on? How much washing, cleansing, lavaging should we do? What is our duty to do this? Um, I mean, there are a lot of factors at play, right? You know, we're, we're busy, we're pressed for time. Uh, there are a lot of patients in the queue. And so i uh, just love to get your opinion as an expert um, in the area. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough tough uh, situation, right? For all the reasons you just mentioned, um, we are all very busy. You know, we have a tight schedule typically kind of back to back, um, you know, and so obviously if we're spending extra time to try to do cleaning and whatnot, we'll most likely end up, you know, delaying the rest of the day. However, you know, what I personally, you know, try to do is just focus on the patient in front of me. And, you know, if the preparation is not poor, like if, I mean, if it's just inadequate, like we mentioned with this mm. uh, case scenario we've been talking about where it's like, oh, I'm assuming just kind of solid stool, you know, covered. Um, in that case, uh, you just abort. But if it's like, okay, there's, you know, some uh, staining here and there, there's some, you know, modest amount of liquid, but mm. it, it's looking kind of fair, let's say. Um, I will tend to persist and I will tend to spend that extra time to wash and clean, to try to bump that prep up to, again, qualitatively, qualitatively speaking, a good or excellent preparation because mm. the patient has taken the time to you mm -hmm. know, do the prep, take time out from work, get a ride, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I just, if it takes an extra five, 10, 15 minutes, to me, that's fine because I think it's worth it to make sure that I change the prep to an adequate preparation, get a good look, and then be able to follow the guidelines of mm -hmm. when to ask the patient to come back rather yeah. than stopping and having them come back, you know, within a year or something. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I, mean, I hate going out to the recovery room after a procedure and telling a patient that their bowel preparation was inadequate and I couldn't complete the exam. I absolutely hate that. I feel like, and, and I think we should, it's our duty to, um, to assure that patients have an adequate bowel preparation. We should try to achieve the benchmarks of over 90% um, adequately cleansed so that we can do what we need to do. And I sort of, I sort of look at it like, um, you know, if it takes 15 extra minutes to take off three or four polyps which is what we're there to do, we should look at the same thing in terms of achieving adequate cleansing of the bowel prep. So you, you mentioned qualitative uh, assessment and, you know, inadequate or adequate or fair, excellent, poor, et cetera. What about more uh, quantitative scoring? And I, and I ask you this because you're at the mecca of, um, <laughs> of bowel prep scoring in Boston and the very famous uh, Boston uh, bowel prep uh, scale, the BBOPs. 
So tell me about that. Do you guys use that? Or was this just a, uh, an academic uh, adventure um, for research studies? Or is this part of your routine practice? That's a great question. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, there's the Boston Bell Prep Score. Um, there are other score, you know, s- scoring systems, though, uh, out there as well. Uh, Chicago, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not, to, not to be outdone by Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, bowel prep score, there's Harefield, Ottawa, Aranchik. But anyways, I think out of all those, I personally use the Boston Bell Prep score. And, and the reason is not just because I'm in Boston, um, <laughs> but the reason is a uh, few different reasons, right? Um, it's something that you do after you've washed and cleaned and suctioned. Um, so not like de novo when you first go in there, but once you've actually done everything you're supposed to do, um, clean as best as possible, then you, uh, you know, score. And it's a very simple score, you know, because you just divide the colon up into three segments, right, transverse, left. And then for each segment, you score zero to three, zero, mm-hmm. solid stool, three, excellent. Like you can basically eat mm-hmm. off the colonic mucosa. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, kind of in between right um and then uh so you score each segment you add it up and and there's your total score um and the other thing i like about the boston bowel prep score is that it also tells us what is an adequate prep um so you know the uh if you use that uh scoring system adequate prep means the total score is at least six mm-hmm. and each segment should be at least two. Um, so if you meet both then you can say, Hey, the patient had an adequate preparation and then go based on again, um, all of the, you know, our guidelines in terms of when to bring them back for the next colonoscopy. Um, the other, you know, score course scoring systems I mentioned have been validated as well. Uh, however, you know, some of them are used before you do washing. Some of them, um, it tend to be a little bit more complicated. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to remember things. So, yeah. you know, whatever is easiest is, is yeah. what I tend to go with. Yeah. Yeah. I also noticed over the past couple of years, I think, I think it's been just over the past few years, it's been incorporated into a lot of the endoscopic software. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that has made it easier. And um, I actually uh, went back to look at the original publication, which was, I think, in 2009 in in gastrointestinal endoscopy. And Brian Jacobson was the senior author on that paper. And what was in, what was great about this is for those that aren't familiar with the Bebop score is that you, you can actually go and see what the different um, you know, sort of score zero, one, two, three means, but also they linked uh, sort of a scoring to um, a polyp detection, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly from this paper yeah. and, you know, overall quality, which is what we're, what we're meant to be doing during these colonoscopies. So I think there's a lot of reason to use it um, and to standardize um, things. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. So I've become yeah, I- a... a I can, yeah, I completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they did link it to the polyp detection rate, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Um, it's not perfect though, right? Because it's still somewhat subjective in that, okay, one, you know, what's one person's two might be another person's three and, you know, right. all that. Um, so it's not perfect, but right. um, I think it's pretty darn good. And who knows, maybe AI yeah. will help us uh, become even more quantitative with the yeah. uh, prep scores. Yeah. So one of the one of the one of the areas that we struggle with here at our institution, and I'm sure that you do where you are, and 
uh, is inpatients. You know, um, <laughs> they they always you want to bring that up. <laughs> I know, but it's a it's such an important topic because. Yeah. You know, these poor patients are immobile uh, uh, most of the time before they come, you know, days or two or longer before the procedure. And then it has impacts on, um, on you know, hospital length of stay um, and all kinds of other downstream important topics. Um, and so anyway, um, I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, what are you guys doing at, uh, at Brigham? Are you doing anything different for inpatients? Have you changed that over the years at all, um, perhaps on, on the hospitalized patients or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you mentioned earlier how we should be aiming for over 90% um, of our patients having an adequate prep, you know, per the ASGE. Mm -hmm. And certainly that is nowhere near the case for inpatients, right? Like mm -hmm. when you look at the studies, it's 30 to 50%, mm -hmm. you know, being inadequate. Um, and for all the reasons that you mentioned, and um, it's a struggle. Um, I'll admit to you, I think Things that have been helpful are educating um, the patient as well as the house staff and the nurses, because right. oftentimes the house staff and nurses have no clue. They're like, right. okay, whatever, you know, yeah, just put this go like, yeah. exactly. Just put this jug in front of them and, exactly. and go. You yeah. see this huge four, you know, four liter jug that's yeah. to them. Barely any fluid has been taken from it. It's like, oh my yeah. gosh, you know? Um, so education, I think, is important, which we've tried to do, um, and, and some studies have suggested that, that that actually did seem to increase, you know, the rate of uh, adequate preps, uh, modest, but, you know, still a positive uh, movement there. And, um, and then I think also in terms of, um, you know, if you can, you know, decrease, minimize opiates, uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, you can't on many patients, but the, that's another thing. Um, of course, no solid food the day before. In terms of orders, you know, it's interesting because there have been several studies, I think, that have tried to look at standardizing an order set for mm -hmm. inpatients um, to try to help. And, and I think, you know, there's some improvement that mm -hmm. happens with this where there's just a great standard order set very clearly defining what needs to happen, clear liquids the day mm. before with no red fluid, you know, if they become nauseous, then, you know, yeah, have them, uh, you know, chill the prep, drink through a straw, slow down the prep, maybe took a break, you know, try right. if they can ambulate, you know, have them walk right. around, you know, so very, very specific instructions in yeah. this order set um, has been shown to be helpful. And then in terms of the type of prep, um, it's interesting because, you know, we've tended to go towards the polyethylene glycol, you know, uh, gallon jug, yeah. um, but it, some studies have actually suggested that lower volume preps may actually uh, be even better you know, yeah. in this patient population where obviously they're happier because it's lower volume, but yeah. it's, but it's still able to achieve, you know, similarly right. adequate prep to the gallon jug. Um, so, so I think that's another thing to consider in these patients. Yeah. And I, I agree with you and it's hard in patients because first of all, uh, when you talk about that sort of 90% uh, benchmark, I mean, these patients are not coming for screening or surveillance procedures. They're coming for right. diagnostics. Right. There's often blood involved. Um, yep. So that's, that's problem number one. Uh, it's really not meant to be looking at the benchmark in that scenario. But the other thing is, is I find that, um, 
at our institution, what we've done is gotten into habit of uh, checking in with the patient the morning of the procedure and really seeing if they're clear. And if they're not clear, since you're in a hospitalized setting, sort of pushing the procedure off to later in the afternoon, and actually um, at that point, either giving some enemas or even taking another liter or two um, and allowing them to wait several hours, you know, until they can have their procedure later. So some of those things, um, I think, uh, help as well. But I agree with yeah, you. It's a no, tough population. Completely agree with you. And I think in terms of uh, our nurses actually call the floor nurses the night before um, just to kind yeah. of see if the floor nurses have any questions about the prep and check in and as you said, you know, how the prep right. progress is going. Um, and then yes, the morning of we'll be checking to see uh, how the progress is. And depending on how well or not well it's going i agree with you we'll do the same thing where we'll okay. have um try to drink a little bit more um and see if we can uh do the procedure in the afternoon obviously if it's really bad and they've only had like one or two bowel movements then yeah. you know we'll have to push the uh, case off till the next day yeah. um but i i completely agree with you yeah is split dose for outpatients now, for getting back to routine uh, screening, surveillance, colonoscopies, is split dose prep the standard? Should we all be doing this uh, across the board for the most part? I would say so, you know, because I think there have been many, many well done randomized studies and meta analyses that are suggest that have shown, not just suggested, but have shown um, that split dose prep is better tolerated and also leads to a better prep. Um, mm -hmm. than just drinking it all the night before. Mm -hmm. I think this is especially true for patients who are coming in for morning uh, colonoscopies. Now, for patients who are coming in the afternoon, um, there has been some thought of, okay, well, maybe we can just have them drink the entire prep the morning of, uh, rather than doing a split dose prep. And I think there are some studies that have suggested that you know, drinking the entire thing the morning of may lead to a better prep uh, then split dose for afternoon uh, colonoscopies. But one thing I'll tell you when we uh, tried to do this, because we tried to do this at our institution, one of the real issues that we came up with is patients were very anxious when they're driving like an hour or two to try to get to uh, the endoscopy center here for the colonoscopy. They were very anxious about having accidents on the way if they had to drink the preparation, you know, just that morning. Um, so some of our patients were uh, not comfortable with that. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you just want to keep it simple and say split dose for everybody, I think that's fine. Obviously, for patients who are having procedures in the morning, it can be kind of a, a pain, you know, waking up at 2, 3 a.m. To, to drink the second half. But I think uh, if that helps you to get a good prep so you can avoid having to come back uh, the next day or sometime within that year for another uh, prep and increases the chances of our finding adenomas and sessile serrated polyps, I, I totally think it's worth it. I agree. I want to just pause for a moment and thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, who has uh, made this podcast series possible. I want to acknowledge Cook for their dedication to endoscopy and innovation in our field and their support for the ASGE. So thank you once again, Cook. Well, I want to just uh, finish off and talk about the future of bowel preparation. Is there a future of bowel preparation? Will it ever get better for our patients, uh, more tolerable? I, I do agree with you. I mean, you know, 
split prep is uh, what's uh, standard now, and it has made things better for patients. I think we're starting to see, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, more or I think preps that are um, sort of less liquid based. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you see the future of bowel preps over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I have to admit, it's, it's not as sexy as all the innovation going on in advanced endoscopy. Um, but the, the two things I've seen, you know, as you've alluded to, one is trying to minimize, you know, the amount, the volume of fluid that a patient has to consume. So uh, instead of the four liters, you know, drop into three liters and then two liters and there's one liter preps out there as well. Um, and so that you know, is one obvious route that a lot of companies have been taking. And, and I think it is helpful, honestly, because when, mm -hmm. I, when I have used some of these lower volume preps on patients who are like, oh my gosh, I, I can't drink you know, a whole gallon, um, they're able to take it down, keep it down and do the preparation. So, so I certainly think um, that effort will continue. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other neat thing that I saw, which I'm hoping we'll see more of, is the so-called edible colon prep, hmm. uh, which is basically they are nutritional bars, um, like power bars or whatever in, in three different flavors, uh, as well as I think a milkshake and a fruit-based smoothie. Uh, and the, these are all embedded with polyethylene glycol. I'm really? Disguising the polyethylene glycol in these uh, really? bars and drinks. Um, and Doug Rex actually led the phase three study uh, for this uh, new edible colon prep several years back and found that it was better tolerated, as you might expect, you know, patients were more satisfied um, and similarly efficacious to movie prep, which is a smaller, you know, volume prep. Um, and, you know, the phase three trial hasn't started yet, uh, but hopefully uh, they'll be able to start that. And I think that'll be kind of cool yeah. um, and, and appealing to our patients. Yeah, especially like I can imagine a scenario where you couple that with a, uh, a low residue, sort of low fiber diet leading up into that, and you might, mm -hmm. you know, be able to do something like that. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, listen, Linda, this has been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I think hopefully our listeners gain something about your experience and this conversation and in the importance of bowel preparations and how meaningful it is for a quality colonoscopy. So thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, John. Well, I'm uh, hoping it's helpful for both the, the outpatients and the inpatients and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time all on the Listen In GI Endoscopy podcast. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at asge.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.